many times these offenders are pillars of the community. They are the teacher of the year. They are the coach that everyone loves, the most successful coaches. They are the doctor, pediatrician, or the sports doctor who everybody wants to be treated by because they, they have the highest reputation. Um, they're the person in the community that everybody looks up to. But if you actually scrutinize what they're doing, they're spending an inordinate amount of time with children or whatever they're victimizing. They are wrapping their entire lives around their access to children. This is former FBI agent and behavioral analyst Jim Clementi, who was consulted by the prosecution in the 2005 criminal trial of Michael Jackson. I always say, if someone wants to spend more time with your child than you can stand spending with your child, then that's a huge red flag. Why is a person who is an adult spending time with children? Many times, offenders will say, I love children. And in fact, they may, in fact, love children. But to them, extending that love and expressing it in a sexual way is not wrong. To them, that's just a manifestation of their love for children. So you have to watch out for people who love children. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 6, A Land of Giants. Hey, Bob. Omar. Hey, man. So this has kind of been bugging me. Um... Once the prosecutors had statements from Jordy Chandler saying Michael Jackson molested him and from the family and doctors saying that they saw like evidence of it, yeah. why wasn't that enough to put Jackson on trial? Well, Jordy wasn't there to testify, so that would have left a big asshole in the case. And then there's this other problem, which is that Jackson doesn't fit the image of what many of us think of as a child molester. Right. You mean like uh, like some pervert in a trench coat or something? Yeah, like the dirty old man. It kind of reminds me of this really cheesy Stranger Danger video from when I was a kid. You've already been told about strangers dressing up in uniforms, but there are other traps you need to know about. Hi, I lost my little dog. Can you help me find him? Be suspicious of an adult asking for help. Hi, I'm just playing with my daughter's video game, but the batteries seem to be dead. I have some in my car. Why don't you come over and help me put them in? Stay away from people in cars or vans. Little boy, I'll give you $10 if you'll take my bags at the car for me. It's okay to say no, even to an adult. Safety is more important than good manners. <laughs> Man, um... You know, the chances of being kidnapped are so minuscule, at least being kidnapped by a stranger, that I... This stuff, I just hate this kind of stuff. I don't teach my kids to, to be exactly that way, you know? Yeah, But, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a piece of history. It certainly changed the paradigm of, like, parenting. Yeah, and it kind of makes me think with this stuff, with, with this sort of crime, that I didn't really know anything about it going into it. Uh, because there's certainly cases like, you know, in those shitty videos where some stranger attempts to uh, abduct a child and sexually abuse them. But, you know, you're right. The, those perpetrators victimize a much smaller number of children. Right. The offenders who have multiple victims are what's called 
acquaintance molesters and they're not a stranger they're not an abusive parent but they befriend the children and the parents in order to get access all right so what exactly makes somebody want to molest kids are they born like that or is it because they were molested as kids what's the Uh, if we're going to consider all this and whether michael jackson was a child molester it seems we have to really know more about what molesters are like and how they behave so i tracked down a couple of people who can weigh in on this and one of them is this guy my name is James Clemente, and I am a retired FBI agent and former New York City prosecutor. I was an FBI agent for 22 years. Before that, I was a prosecutor for the city of New York, the New York City Law Department, and um, I specialized in child sex crimes. And when I joined the FBI, I worked on the NYPD FBI Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force did a number of cases there, and I did I did cases throughout my career uh, until I was promoted to supervisory special agent into the behavioral analysis unit, became an FBI profiler. Um, I was in the crimes against children unit there, and over the course of my career, I investigated serial rape, serial murder, child abduction, and child sex crimes. I also became an expert witness in the area of child sexual victimization, among other things. Jim Clemente is also a very, very busy guy. I transitioned to be a writer, and I write for TV now. Uh, Criminal Minds is uh, in its last season. I'm currently writing my, my last episode of the series now, and something that I've been doing for... Uh, this is our 15th season, so it's really been an honor, and I've learned so much about this. But I also write and produce uh, scripted and non-scripted shows uh, in the crime space generally, and I try to use uh, Hollywood's money to do some good, to resolve cases, to find closure for some of the families, to bring justice for victims who can no longer speak for themselves. Clemente currently has more unread emails than I have received in the entirety of my whole goddamn life. Uh, Actually, at this point, I have 82,289 unread emails. I get about 400 a day, and uh, it's just not possible to read all of them. So the the emails that have stacked up over the course of the last, uh, I guess, 15 years, you know, it just happens. I learned a lot from Clemente. In fact, one of the first things I learned changed my view, not just about abusers, but about their victims. I believed victims of sexual abuse had their lives ruined or destroyed once they were victimized by adults. Clemente pointed out to me how dangerous this thinking could be. People do say things in the news and and uh, at, uh, at conferences and and in the workplace that children who are sexually victimized, are, their lives are destroyed, their souls are killed, they're, you know, they're damaged forever. And not only do children who are victimized hear that, but adults who were victimized as children hear that. And children who have yet to be victimized hear that. So if they do get victimized, they think their life is over. And it's very dangerous rhetoric. We should not be talking those terms. It's very emotional. The fact is that you can actually have been victimized as a child and grow up to have a wonderful life. And you can heal and you can move forward. You can be a survivor and a thriver. And I'm a living example of that. 
I was victimized when I was a teenager and I, I had a very tough 10 years after that because I didn't talk to anybody about it other than the priest at my high school. And then, and he told me, he absolved me of my sins as if it was my fault and that I should never speak a bit about it again. And he told me to do penance of saying 10 Our Fathers and 10 Hail Marys. And it made me feel terrible about being sexually victimized. So after that, though, I found out that there were other victims and went to the FBI and NYPD task force and told them. And then I participated in the investigation and we locked up the guy who sexually victimized me and he went to jail. And as a result of that, I was actually recruited into the FBI because of my work on that case. There are actually three episodes of Criminal Minds that portray Clemente's personal story through the lens of one of its characters as a victim of sexual abuse from season two. All these years, I kept my mouth shut. I let you go on being a hero. Carl Buford, my mentor. What are you talking about? God, I was so afraid of you. I was afraid of the police. Afraid of losing everything I was gaining. But that's how you work, isn't it? You make sure there's a hell of a lot to lose, don't you? Derek Morgan, played by Shamar Moore, goes back to his hometown and has to confront the fact that he was victimized as a child. Now you're just talking crazy. God, I should have told somebody about you when I was a kid, when you were helping me. Well, you know what happens in cases like this? Once that dam breaks, the flood comes. One kid steps up, just one, and then another, and another, because they're not scared of you anymore. They know they're not alone. It documents the fact that at first, I wasn't telling anybody about what happened to me. Then I got to the point where I disclosed it to my close colleagues, and then I now talk about it to the world. Look, Eric, I never hurt you. You could have said no. I've given talks about it. I've published a book about it. I've, I've uh, done podcasts about it. And so it's a transition to where I can now use my story to help survivors understand that no matter what happened to them, the crimes that were committed against them, it was not their fault, and they can go on and have a wonderful, happy, and healthy life. And I think that's really important to me. You're under arrest, Carl. I've helped a lot of kids. Let's go. The neighborhood won't be the same without me. It's going to be worse. Part of what Clemente was trying to convey in the dramatization of his story in Criminal Minds was the complexity of child molestation, the complicated emotions of victims, and the elaborate ruses employed by abusers. When he joined the FBI, and decided to focus on sex crimes against exploited children, Clemente trained under another man who pretty much wrote the book on child sex offenders. My name is Kenneth Lanning, and I would say for a little over 45 years, I have been involved in studying the criminal aspects of deviant sexual behavior. I began doing this work when I was in the FBI back in 1973, where I became an instructor in certain in the area of what was then called sex crimes. And then a few, about seven years later, uh, I began to specialize specifically in sexual victimization of children. 
And so most of my early work was done in the FBI. Uh, I was assigned to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, now known as the Behavioral Analysis Unit. And there I did training, research, and case consultation on many, many cases. After I retired in 2000, I continued doing this work as a consultant. I consulted with the FBI. I got involved in more in civil litigation as well. And I've testified many times as an expert witness in state and federal court. Lanning was also consulted by the prosecution in the 2005 criminal trial of Michael Jackson as an expert witness. Lanning recently wrote a memoir about his work called Love, Bombs, and Molesters, An FBI Agent's Journey. As the book makes clear, when Lanning first came to work at the FBI, the general understanding of child sex offenders was pretty limited. When I was first trained in the late 60s, early 70s, the focus about child molesters was primarily on what's commonly referred to as stranger danger, just a term that people use, but it focused on those cases that were the best known cases where it was a stranger, sometimes with the stereotype of the dirty old man and the wrinkled raincoat type of thing. To wit, here's another, even more outdated, public service announcement about child molesters attempting to abduct children. Hi there. Do you live around here? Uh-huh. You going to school? Yes. Well, uh, I, I could give you a ride. Last year, 50,000 children disappeared, many of them from nice, safe neighborhoods. It's okay. Come on, help me. Talk to your children about not talking to strangers and do it today. And so that was the early focus. And so it was kind of this clear contrast between the evil offender and the goodness of this child who was lured and then overpowered by the offender. And that was the first area that the public got interested in. It's a difficult topic. People don't like to think about it. But it was easy to separate it from you because this guy, by definition, was a stranger. He was not part of your group. Stranger danger is real, just exaggerated. Most offenders exist outside the image of the lurking molester so common in those years. With Lanning's help, authorities began to understand child molestation more fully and as part of a larger category of crime and violence. Most children, sad to say, are abused either physically or sexually by family members, most often by their parents or father. And so people began to recognize this and the research began to grow. Now, with intrafamilial cases, the way I discovered that many people dealt with that is they would decide that these intrafamilial cases, the way they could separate themselves from that was with the idea that this was not their socioeconomic group. These were these other people who lived on the other side of town. These people were poorer than me, richer than me, lighter than me, darker than me. They were somebody else, not the people that I interacted with. And so you could separate yourself. So it was one way to deal with this difficult thing and to understand how this could happen. One of the most difficult subjects Lanning began to investigate was the growing realization of the acquaintance molester. The problem with the acquaintance molester, which caused me to to realize this was the hardest type of case for people to really think about and deal with and try to prevent and recognize and intervene in, is that you can't separate yourself from the offender because by definition, he's an acquaintance. He's somebody that you know. You shook his hand. You invited him to your house. You told your your child to do what they say. And so this was a very difficult case for society to deal with. And in my opinion, it still is. 
So I've always heard that if somebody's an abuser or like a child molester, it's usually because they themselves were abused as kids, right? No, no. See, that's another misconception that I had going into this. Here's Jim Clemente again. Yeah, one of the myths is that once somebody is sexually victimized, that they are on a path to become an offender, and that's a complete myth. Uh, are they born that way? or? Well, let's back up. Let me first explain that, as we said, there's the acquaintance molester. And yeah. so we need to delineate between the two types of offenders. There's the incidental child sex offender and the preferential child sex offender. All right. So what? What's? tell me the difference between the two. So an incidental would be like an incident. You know, like usually everybody knows somebody who knows somebody where it's like a guy had sex with an underage girl he met her at a bar at a bar or like a relative who did the same thing with his cute niece after he got drunk one night camping or something you know gross right. but you know right there's okay. stories and what about the preferential uh sex offender yeah so the preferential one that's their it's what they prefer all the time they're after and they're into children when somebody typically a preferential child sex offender will recognize their sexual attraction to children in late adolescence. And many of these people who are potential offenders embrace that. Jim Clementi. They realize they're sexually attracted to children and they actually pursue it from that point forward. They volunteer where they volunteer at places where they can get access to children. They become sports coaches. They become teachers. They become uh, foster parents, they become volunteers at, at uh, charitable organizations or youthful organizations so that they can pursue their sexual attraction to children. And I've interviewed many offenders who have done that over the career of their offending. Others, though, may recognize it and say, I recognize this is wrong. And so they actually try to do something to avoid that. And my belief is that a number of the priests who ended up sexually victimizing children after becoming priests actually went into the Catholic priesthood with the hope of being able to avoid sexually victimizing children. That they actually felt that because Catholic priests are celibate, that they would be able to avoid their sexual attraction to children and not victimize any children. However, when they got into that position of power and authority and access to children, that they could not help themselves, that they decide, made a decision, I'm going to go forward and actually act on this. I'm going to put these children, excuse me, I'm going to put these children in a position where I can take advantage of them sexually. And they make the affirmative decision to do that. So this is the kind of thing that there is a spectrum of behavior. There's no absolute, it's not always one way or always another way, but there's a whole bunch of areas of gray in between. All right, and these people want to have sex with children? Well, that's another murky thing in this kind of soft science of behavioral sciences, because like sex to you and me is one thing. And to some of these preferential child sex offenders, sex can mean many different things, according to Ken Lanning. And so some of these offenders obviously do that, but many of them do not. And so you have more subtle kinds of things. Then you wind up with things, is kissing a child a sexual act? 
Is hugging a child a sexual act? Is massaging a child a sexual act? Is rubbing a child's feet a sexual act? It depends on intent and motivation. What was the intent? Okay, okay. Give me a, a for instance here. Okay, for instance, here's a case Lanning was involved in. One that I was involved in was individuals who would frequently go into public restrooms and things like that and get sexually aroused by listening to children urinate. And that's what they were aroused by. And so you can get the guy and you can say, he said, yeah, I went in that bathroom. I followed that boy in there and I listened to him urinate and I got aroused by that. Okay, you're under arrest. For what? He was in a public place. Now, if he went in some place he wasn't supposed to be, he could be arrested for trespassing, but that's not going to be a sex crime. Oh, that is just awful. I know, dude. But guess what? We're talking about this shit and to understand these charges and allegations. We need to understand this so we both got to hold our breath here. It's just so, I mean, with kids, it's so hard to talk about. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to talk about this. Jim Clementi calls it a conspiracy of silence. Yeah, yeah, the conspiracy of silence. That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, but just think about this. He and Ken Lanning have been dealing with this their entire careers. This is something that most people don't really want to deal with, don't really want to talk about it. And I knew a woman whose son was molested by a Boy Scout leader who had befriended her and gained more detailed and continuous access to the child through his her relationship with him. And then her son got molested, and then the guy got caught and got convicted. So she decided to devote her life to educating people about what we've been talking about here this afternoon. And she started going out to do presentations. And after about two or three years, she called me up one day, and she was like all depressed. And she said, I'm so sad. I can't get anyone to listen to me. They don't want to hear this. They want to talk about stranger danger. They want to talk about somebody else who does this. They don't want to talk about these guys. They just don't want to deal with it. She said, I feel so very frustrated. And that sometimes if you go out there and you talk about stranger danger, 200 people show up in the auditorium. You talk about nice guy offenders and there's six people in the room. Ah, oh, dude, I, I, I feel like I just need a break here. You know what I do when I need a break, Omar? What? I go to YouTube and I look up news bloopers, like lo local news bloopers. <laughs> Come on, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have these like montages. It's like 20 minutes. It's just the best. All these local newscasters screwing up and, you know, they fall down on camera or they accidentally say tits or something instead of mitts. You know, just accidentally <laughs> saying an appropriate thing. I watch the blooper reels and I just laugh my ass off. And it kind of sets everything right in the world for me. Yeah, hold on. I'm looking at one right now. A Tokyo startup developed the satellites to create shardy uh, shooting stars on demand. The ground is now good. To oh, you've been joined by a beautiful lady. It's a man, actually, Derek. <laughs> a little bit of pleasure every single time you eat. So you heard it. Tara Coleman, clinical nutritionist. Pleasure yourself with that food. <laughs> that came out wrong. Uh, to say their final goodbyes to this fallen Louisville police officer, D.D. Mega Doo Doo. I'm sorry, Mangudu. The worst is it's like, like perfect comedy. <laughs> People acting professionally, screwing up on camera. It's good, clean fun. All right. Well, <laughs> I do feel a little bit better. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so we just need to bear in mind that right now we're learning. We're educating ourselves on something not pretty, 
but we're both fathers. You know, I'm about to be a father, and we're doing this to protect our children and families. Yeah. No, you know, you're actually right. That's true. Um, okay. I'm ready. Uh, teach Thanks me some for, more, brother. Teach me more. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. <laughs> All right. Listen, I've been wondering about another thing. Um, are we just talking about men or are we talking about women too? Are molesters ever women? Yes. Sometimes women can be involved, but rarely, according to these experts, uh, Clementi and Lanning. Often the women, though, are just there to help facilitate the abuse if they're involved at all. Okay. So how do these acquaintance molesters get their victims? Like, um, how do they trap the kids? Um, like, it sounds like it, it obviously doesn't matter if you're black or white or rich or poor. Yeah. It's not um, an act of sexual abuse or sex. Okay. It's kind of... Uh, it's it's like, kind of a seduction. Right. Yeah, exactly. So how do they, how do they go about seducing kids? Yeah, so they, in the seduction, the term that Ken Lanning and Jim Clementi use is grooming. Jim... Clementi again. Grooming is a term that we use in in the area of child sexual victimization that refers to a pattern of behavior that gives an offender access, authority, and control over a child so they could take advantage of them sexually. This grooming, though, can be aimed not only at the child, but at their parents and guardians and at the community in general. So some offenders will be so adept at this that they have convinced not only the child and the people around this child, but the entire community, the state, the country, or the world. And based on their level of popularity in that community, and whether that community is a local community or, as I said, the entire globe, the level of their celebrity actually gives them so much more power over the child, their parents, and the community in general. All right, so walk me through this. How do you go from an adult uh, relationship with a child, how does that go from like hanging out after church or after a Little League game or something from there to a sexual relationship? Yeah, it's not at all like I would have thought. One of the most effective grooming methodologies is for an adult who has access, authority, and control over a child to get the child to do one little thing that, that the child knows is wrong. And whether that is saying bad words, looking at pornographic images, drinking, underage, doing pot or some other drug, driving without a license, all those kinds of things. If an offender can get a child to do one of those things that the child knows is wrong. The chances of that child running and telling the parents, mommy, daddy, I did this bad thing and then this bad thing happened to me. Those chances are incredibly reduced. So it's one way to really quickly control a child. It also creates sort of a bond between the offender and the child. Wow, this is the kind of thing that, that adults don't normally do with children, but this adult is doing it with me. It makes a child feel like they're grown up doing these grown up things. And every child looks up to adults and grown ups because that's what they want to be. And the thing to understand, Omar, with the fact that these kinds of abusers have many, many victims who need to be specific ages, you know, the kids age out. So they have what's called a pipeline, a sort of grooming pipeline, right? 
Oh, so like when one kid ages out, then there's... Yeah, like one ages out, there's a kid that they brought in and seduced at age seven, say. Uh... Now the kid's like 13 or 14, you know, could be at age 12, he's done with the, mm-hmm. with the victim. So they need other victims because it's a process of getting kids into this place where they can be taken advantage of. There needs to be other kids in that line of process. This is how Ken Lanning explains it. Recruit them, seduce them molest them, dispose of them. And so then you run through the pipeline. And now how long that pipe is, depending on how long the relationship is. Sometimes it could be six months, it could be a year, it could be four years. So the kids move through this pipeline. The hardest place to attack one of these investigations, maybe that's a good word, but to intervene in a case like this is the kid who's in the pipe. That's the kid who's being groomed and seduced and molested. The best place to try to find a victim who might disclose is in the early stages of recruitment or at the end coming out the other end where these kids are being passed on. Now, how you control the kid you're going to pass on is actually dependent upon how skillful the offender is and whether this is an offender who's been doing this for 40 years and didn't get caught or somebody who did it for a short time. So the two vulnerabilities, I've seen cases where these offenders have gotten identified early because they got sloppy in their recruiting. They just picked the wrong kid. They tried to accelerate the process before the kid was really ready. And so sometimes that leads to disclosure. And then sometimes the ability to pass the kid on, you botch that, the kid gets angry, gets upset, and so on. What they do is they see a child and they find a child that they're attracted to, and they assess and evaluate that child and find out what this child's needs are. For some children, it's material things. It's gifts, presents, things like that. For others, it's attention and kindness. And so what they do is they customize their approach depending on the needs of that child. They identify a need, they fill that need, and that's what results in them getting away with their crime. So there's a variety of ways that these offenders can control these victims, but it's probably being able to control the victim when you're finished with the victim is one of the ways that distinguishes those who have done this for a long time and those who get caught more quickly. But a lot of times they do maintain a relationship with the child. It's just not the same relationship. They stay friends with the child and interact with the child and maybe fill enough of the child's needs that the child just doesn't say. But I would say the biggest thing that controls the child from telling is shame, guilt, and embarrassment. All right, so that's also what I wanted to talk about because I imagine a lot of these kids, like after they've aged out or whatever at 13 or 14, 15, whatever, um, and since they got involved in this, they probably are... I don't know, like, if, for instance, if a kid is straight, are they worried that they'll be labeled gay by their... Oh, totally. There's this kind of weird homophobia around it. And Jim Clemente even told me that this affected some of the work at the FBI, trying to get undercover agents to entrap offenders. So I, one, of the, one of my jobs in, in the FBI and the behavioral analysis unit was training undercover agents for doing online sexual victimization investigations undercover investigations. And what I found was almost to a person, the male agent would, would take on the persona of a female child online rather than a male child online. And I believe that was because the male agents do not want to, they don't feel comfortable talking about 
homosexual behavior with the offender. In other words, actual adolescent males that are online um, are interested in talking about sex and, and sexual activities and so on and so forth. And for an undercover agent, they would have to engage in those kinds of conversations with an offender, and they, don't, they just don't feel comfortable doing that. They feel much more comfortable posing as a female talking about regular heterosexual sexual encounters. And unfortunately, what that does is it creates a situation in which the most prolific offenders, those male offenders who go after adolescent male victims, are not being addressed by any of these undercover investigations. So because of all this, it seems like they're missing out on a lot of cases. Is that right? Yeah, there's a detective in the Northeast who's focusing just on those offenses, and they can extrapolate those numbers across the country, and they're finding thousands of offenders aren't being addressed because of the stigma. Because of the homophobia, the, like the homophobia angle, is that right? Yeah, yeah, because mind you, as we talked earlier in the episodes, for a long time, pedophilia was associated with homosexuality, which now we understand to not only be completely wrong factually, but also morally offensive. Right. But it remains that being gay, you know, that slur, you know, when I was a kid, they, they you know, they'd be like, don't be a fag. Don't, you know, that's, right. that's what, and they still do that. You know, boys still do that at that age, use it to insult other boys. So that stigma of abuse that, you know, they receive from an offender at an early age, the last thing they'd want to do a victim would be to disclose as a teenager. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially at that age, you know, like around 14, 15, you just, you just want to be cool. You just want to fit yeah. in. Well, and the last thing you want to do, you know, is publicly admit that you're a victim of abuse by another male, older or not, because that's the hard part about this. You know, we think, well, if you're being abused, why not run away? You right. know, why do you keep going back to the offender? And that's a tough question because the males who are overwhelmingly victims here, they don't run away. These are kids who are adolescents at the state early stages of abuse, and they can get aroused at anything. Yeah, I remember like you know having to answer questions on the blackboard, and that was always a real dicey uh, proposition. Yeah, or you get a boner on when you the bus at the pothole. <laughs> yeah. You know, but we think of children as innocent angels, and I certainly was not. I mean, I learned to manipulate and get what I wanted as soon as I started crying as a baby, and by that age you know, eight, nine, 10, I was already doing bad stuff, you know, sneaking cigarettes, finding dirty magazines, swearing, you know, it was like Bart Simpson in Michigan. So, you know, I don't want to, but I could at least see in these early stages of being vulnerable to an older person seeming cool and leading me down a path, you know, not necessarily being molested, but I certainly had older family friends who were like, hey, man, punk rock's cool. I'll buy you beer if you don't tell your parents, you know? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I don't know. But again, these things these things can happen. Rich, poor, broken families, black, white, doesn't matter. But I could see myself landing into a relationship that starts out cool gets weird, and I don't know how to pull myself away as a kid. These kids are not forced into this. Nobody's holding a knife to their throat or a gun to their head and telling them, if you don't do this, I'll kill you. This grooming process is much more subtle than that. And so if you don't understand that process and don't understand why these kids wouldn't immediately run and tell somebody about it, then you're not going to understand and you're not going to be able to properly investigate these cases. So they have to be investigated by people who have been trained and understand these dynamics about how these offenders operate. Uh, when I started to get involved in civil cases, I would be involved in many organizations where an allegation would be made, and you'd say, well, why did you only take it so far? Well, we decided that it was unfounded. 
And why'd you decide it was unfounded? Well, because everybody said he was a nice guy. And the kids would return to him all the time. Matter of fact, they'd come back to the camp and ask him to be, for him to be their counsel the next year. Therefore, he couldn't possibly be true. They just don't understand. All right. I, yeah, I need another break. Okay, hold on. You don't have to relegate yourselves to crackers and ding-dongs, right? I mean, I do love a good ding-dong. Yeah. Actual feel-like temperatures, though, are... Uh, ooh. Uh, okay. Um... That's hot. That's, <laughs> that's not the feel-like temperature. I've been, been having this issue all morning. All the latest traffic to help you avoid those hot spots this Friday morning, plus lots of your photos. Put a bit of smoke on your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, now we're back. So, what do, so what do we do with these molesters then as a society? At, like, I don't believe in the death penalty, but do we put them in prison? Do we lobotomize them? I don't really believe in that. Well, I don't know. I, yeah, castrate them. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah, yeah. What's the appropriate thing to do? And everybody, you can make this argument that some of these guys have a sickness. Pedophilia is a psychiatric disorder. It's a sexual paraphilia. Ken Lanning, again. So you have that age-old debate. So people ask me, where do you fall in this? And my attitude is, I'm not against treatment. I'm in favor of two things. Treatment is about the future. Punishment is about the past. So you committed crimes. They are serious crimes. You engaged in sexual activity with children. And for that, in my opinion, you need to be punished. So you're going to go to jail. And it's not a question of what you're going to do in the future. It's a question of what you did in the past. You're going to be punished for terrible things that you did and so on and so forth. And so we're going to punish you. Now, that punishment may involve probation. It may involve six months in jail. It may involve three years in jail. It may involve 20, 30, 40 years in jail, just kind of depending on what you did. But I'm also in favor of treatment because very few of these guys are getting life without possibility of parole. So most of these guys, whatever sentence they get, sometime or other in the future, they're going to be getting out of jail. And therefore, I'm not against treatment, and I think we need to consider treatment models. As one prosecutor I used to know, I don't know what she's doing today, but she said something very simple and profound. She said some sex offenders can be treated. Some sex offenders can't be treated. The great problem and challenge is figuring out which is which. And so when you look at this guy, you don't simply say he's a child molester and make some blanket decision. You have to say, what is he? Is he suffering from pedophilia? Does he have some other kind of problem and some other kind of mental disorder that he might have? And what is the best way to treat these individuals? But some people are more amenable to treatment than others. So we have to consider both possibilities. I've also discovered that many of these people, the only time they seem to be motivated towards going into a treatment program is when they're facing punishment. And then pretty soon when you say, okay, you can go into the treatment program, but it's not going to affect your sentence, then seemingly they, many of them seem to be less interested in getting treatment. But I'm in favor of both of them because very few of these People are getting life without parole. When do victims typically disclose abuse? It's a very difficult issue. I asked that of Jim Clemeni, who did extensive work in cases of abuse within the Catholic Church. He told me this pretty powerful thing about children growing up in the land of giants. So generally, we found in the John Jay Catholic priest 
sexual victimization study that the average time it took for a victim of childhood sexual abuse to come forward was 20 years. And that a full 25% in that, in that broad investigation and study came forward after 30 years. The John Jay Report, as it is commonly known, was a study carried out by the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. It was commissioned by the Catholic Church as a result of the priest sexual abuse scandals in the United States. The full name of the report, published in 2004, is The Ungainly, The Nature and Scope of the Problem of Sexual Abuse of Minors by Catholic Priests and Deacons in the United States, 1950-2002. to Anyway, back to Jim Clemeny. So there are a number of things that prevent a child from coming forward or reduce the chances that a child will come forward when they're still children. One is children grow up in a land of giants. Adults around them are much more powerful, not only in physical size and stature, but also they have much more social power. They're in positions of power and authority over children and they are most of the time, a vast majority of the time, known to the parents, known to the family, known to the child. And therefore, there's a relationship that exists that the child does not want to undermine or doesn't think that they have the power to undermine. And I think there's, well, and I know there are millions, literally millions of examples of that where a child does not disclose at the time and in fact, in the Catholic Church study, in the, excuse me, and in fact, in the John Jay Catholic Church study, only uh, a percentage in the teens of children actually came forward in the first year, within the first year. That was, I think, 13%. Um, and many of those kids were not believed. And sometimes there were cases in which parents took their kids to the very priest that had sexually victimized them and made them confess their sin of lying against that priest. Um, it, it, in, when you have a very strong Catholic faith and a family, uh, it's very hard to overcome that presumption that, that the priest is the messenger of God on earth, that, that they basically can do no wrong and very many of the kids who were victimized by priests had to go up against that, and that's a, almost an impossible thing to overcome. Well, that's just awful. Ken Lanning added that it's not uncommon for victims to disclose as adults, usually like after they've had their own children. But a lot of these kids get older, then they get married, and they have their own children. And then suddenly they look at this in a totally different way and now decide that they don't want this to go on. And I went through it. I endured it and so on. But, but now that I'm a father I, or a mother, I have my own children. I don't want to hap- that happen to them and so on. So that may motivate them to come forward. So there's a variety of dynamics that come about. The approach that I make in trying to train law enforcement to be neutral, objective fact finders is to consider all possibilities. Are there false allegations? Absolutely there are. Are there inaccurate allegations? Absolutely there are. And therefore what a good investigator does is consider all those possibilities. You listen, you assess and evaluate, 
and you attempt to corroborate and you look at the totality, you open the door up and you look at the big picture. What's unfortunate is if you keep peeping through the keyhole looking at this incident, that incident, that incident, it's really a problem. What you have to do is stop peeping through the keyhole, step back, open the door, and look at the big picture. Look at the totality of what you have. All right. So I imagine back to the um, incremental disclosure thing. Uh-huh. Um, it's got to be tough because the victims knew these guys, right? Like, right. And they're not the dirty old man in the raincoat or the guy in the unmarked white van that kidnapped him and, you know, abused him against their will. These are people that had long relationships with the kids. Jim Clemente explained it better than me. Most victims can come to sort of a place where they can separate those things out. Because if this offender was in their life, I mean, for many of these victims, the offender was part and parcel of their life since they were born. I mean, many times victims are victimized by family members or or quasi-family members, people that they're very close with, that they live with, they spend a lot of time with. And because of that, the things that they did together that were actually good, the fact is they they can have good memories and bad memories. This is why there's this ambivalence on the part of most victims to the offender because they have very positive feelings about what their relationship with that offender and what they thought that that relationship was versus the very negative things that happened when they were victimized. It may have taken time to kick in. The the resultant negative effects may have lasted a long time or been resolved fairly quickly it depends on the individual because it sounds like some of it's a pattern of behavior but it's always a little i don't know different in real life for i think probably for both the victims and the offenders yeah it's never black and white even the recall of victims can be different and distorted and they may feel guilty or partly to blame but there are patterns in how it plays out Ken Lanning again. Most of these offenders have been doing this for one, two, five, 10, 20, 30 years. And many of these guys have been with some of their victims for six months, a year, two years. And it's not a matter of everything happened or nothing happened. In some of these cases, some of what was alleged is fairly accurate and that's happened. Some of it is a distortion and a misrepresentation. How old were the children? What did they understand? What was their knowledge of sexual behavior? Many of these kids don't even really understand exactly what is sex and what's going on here. Some of them you know, just are not sure what's happening. Maybe they have an idea. And so it's not a matter of everything the child says is accurate and literally precise or nothing happened at all. And so that's the thing that you have to look at. And that's where a prosecutor has to decide what charges they're going to bring. But in my opinion, if the courts allow it, and I don't understand because I'm not a lawyer, sometimes they do and they sometimes they don't. These cases are very hard to prove one-on-one, one victim, one offender. And then it becomes the proverbial he said, she said case, or he said, he said case. That in these cases, if you're, having, if you're dealing with an offender who truly is what I call a preferential sex offender, who's an acquaintance molester, who uses it as an acquaintance relationship with children, that that kind of an offender is almost always going to have multiple victims. And the more of them you can identify and get them to testify. But the problem is, and I've seen this repeatedly, most boys especially adolescent boys, 
are never, ever, no matter what you do, no matter how good you are at interviewing, no matter how skillful you are, they'll never admit it or they'll never testify to it in open court. They're ashamed and embarrassed about what happened and they don't want to talk about it. So if you're a prosecutor, you can't make these kids come in and say things that they don't want to say. So most of these kids say that nothing happened and they just don't want to talk about it anymore and they just go on with their lives and maybe sometime down the road they change their minds and want to talk about it but it's difficult all right so this obviously has implications for the jackson cases but before we get back to that um i've got a question for both landing and clemente yeah shoot what can i do as a parent um i've got two kids you know they're still young and how how do i prepare them to watch out for this kind of thing yeah, great question. How do you tell somebody, you would tell a kid, son, Johnny, Mary, there's going to be some people out there that you're going to meet. They're adults, and they'll pretty much look like most other adults. They'll act like most other adults. But there's one way in which they'll be different from most of the adults you meet. And that way is that they'll really pay a lot of attention to you. They will be very interested in your life. They will know about your likes and dislikes. They will know about the games and toys and things that you like to do. They will understand a lot about you. They will relate to you in a different kind of way than most adults that you meet. And they'll really seem like nice. And you'll think they're the best people you ever met. And watch out for them. I mean, how do you communicate that message to a child? And right. again, I don't... I also don't want to make children paranoid and get to the point where they're not going to talk to anybody. And so this is a difficult kind of thing. Stranger danger is hard enough. What most people don't understand about stranger danger is most children under the age of 12, you cannot explain to them what a stranger is. There's just no consistent definition. You can explain it all you want, but these children just don't get it. So the problem is that children roughly, approximately under under 12, tend to listen to what mom and dad say, but they don't really kind of understand the subtleties of it. Children kind of over 12 or 13 kind of understand some of the subtleties, but they no longer listen because you get to a certain age and what you're going to do is exactly what your mother and father told you not to do. And if one TV program is involved in the kid at the end, they said, did your mother family give you any guidance? Yes. Did they give you all these rules? Yes. Did you follow them? No. Why not? Because rules are made to be broken. And that's what being a teenager is all about. And many of these teenagers who get lured by these people, let's say online and so on, get groomed and seduced, they lie to their parents. They sneak out of the house and go meet these people. No, these people didn't say, hey, I'll meet you in the park and give you the answers to the algebra homework. They said, meet you in the park and we'll run away and we'll go to Las Vegas and have sex and live happily ever after. And so you have to understand that when kids reach puberty, there's a big difference. <laughs> they now have raging hormones. So this is not an easy thing. Can't wait till they're 16. So you have to start to talk to the kids about this when they're little. And you just go along and you say what you think is age appropriate at different situations. It should be part of the whole discussion of safety and so on and being aware of things. But many parents find it extremely difficult to talk to their children about this. But I just believe that you have to start when they're young. You just can't wait till later on. The other thing that I think is extremely important, it may be almost impossible 
to totally prevent something like this from ever happening. Therefore, your goal may not be total prevention, but early intervention, so that if your child meets somebody like this and makes a mistake and error in judgment, the child can, your child can come to you and tell you about it after it happened once, not after it happened 40 times over a two-year period of time. Jim Clementi. They need to be told, not just stranger danger, don't talk to strangers, don't take candy from strangers, don't go off with a stranger if they say they lost their puppy, or do you want to pet this puppy, or do you want to come with me? We tell our children that, but what we don't do is tell them that their their parents, their siblings, their aunts and uncles, their teachers, their coaches, their you know priests or pastors, their nuns, their um, administrators at school, that that they are actually more of a potential danger for their child than a stranger is. Because in the United States of America, there are roughly 160 to 200 child abductions every year, long-term, non-familial, stranger abductions every year. There are about two to 3,000 short-term abductions that may result in a child being sexually victimized over a short period of time. But there are literally hundreds of thousands, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of acts of child sexual victimization in this country every year. It's exponentially greater risk for a child to be with someone they know and trust and love than to be taken by someone they don't know at all. And so we need to prepare our children, arm them with that information. Can you imagine a world in which you lived on a busy street and you have children and you know that it's a risk to them playing out in the front yard and running into the street. But to protect them from it, you simply don't tell them it's a danger. You send them out there to play, but you don't tell them it's a danger. Of course we don't do that. What we do is we explain to them that these cars going by won't be able to stop and you could get hurt or killed. We walk them to the corner. We hold their hand. We told them to look both ways. We tell them to wait for the, the sign to change and cross the street with them, holding their hands until they can do it safely alone. We think that by keeping them naive about it, that we're actually protecting them. And that is an absolute fallacy. If they don't know it's a problem, they can't be asked to help protect themselves. Why not arm your child? Why would I let my baby A little angel in wings And rose cheeks Why would I let him fall Into the devil's face Why would I soon be strong Carry the weak and with no strings. Why would I let it slide? The devil showed his teeth. I ruled the devil out, gave benefit a doubt. I can thrash, I can shout, but the truth is I. 
Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor, Seth Weiss is our recording engineer, and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. Jacob Sanders also wrote and recorded the song Devil's Fang for this episode with his band Celebrity Warship.